Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry, we had a glitch in our reading there. Let me read you the text we're going to be preaching from today. It's 1 John um, 1, and it's going to be verses 8 through... um, So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed and continue our series on 1 John, Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any air that I may speak and open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. Now, Father, as we delve into the nature of sin and what it is to forgive, Lord, we, we often struggle in our own lives with forgiveness and forgiving others. Lord, what is it to forgive another? What is it to forgive ourselves? Lord, so many of us struggle with that. So many of us struggle with forgiving ourselves over things that we have done. We come each week on Sunday morning and we say and we mouth the words of forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness. And yet, so many of us struggle at a deep level with forgiving others and forgiving ourselves. We come up for communion, and we say we've forgiven, and yet we carry these bitternesses and these struggles with us all the time. Lord, help us to become the people of the light, to learn to distinguish the difference between light and darkness, what it means to dwell in the light, what it means to dwell in the darkness, what it means to give up bitterness, what it means to learn to truly forgive ourselves and others, and help us to be a people that knows and practices forgiveness. Teach us that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so the series on First John has always has been very interesting to me, um, just learning it and looking through it and, and, uh, and, and reading it. Uh, hopefully it's been interesting to you, and you all are meditating on this book, this epistle. Uh, as I told you, First John, um, just as a pastor... Uh, in my ministry over the years, I've been in ministry now, what's tw- uh, 27 years, 28 years now? The 28 years, I've been a, a, a priest for 17, 18 years. I've been a, in ministry full-time for 27, 28 years. And this epistle, you know, when I first was looking at it, seemed like a simplistic epistle. I like this epistle. Of course, you, you know, what epistle aren't you going to like, right? But Romans and Hebrews and, and the Old Testament seem so much more significant to me. Now, I was unusual as an Episcopal pastor because, or as an, as an Episcopalian because I knew my Old Testament when I grew up in the Episcopal church. A lot of Episcopalians didn't. They grew up with the Gospels, right? And so when I went to seminary, I was astonished, like uh, all the Presbyterians there, they all knew their uh, Pauline, all the Pauline passages, but they did not know their Gospels very well. And now I was an Episcopalian, so I knew my Gospels, but I didn't know the Pauline passages very well. But I was a rare Episcopalian, and then I grew up knowing my Old Testament very well. Uh, but I, the first John passages were something that a lot of people didn't really pay attention to. But the longer I've been a pastor, the more I've come to appreciate these passages, th- these epistles. They are very deep and very rich, and so I hope you all are learning to grasp and understand them well and, and really falling in love with them as much as I'm in love with them. So, 
In our confessional each week, at least in this service, we didn't do it this morning, but we have over the last a few weeks, and we, we alternate, we kind of run through a whole bunch of different things in our liturgies here. And one of the reasons we do it, there is a method to our madness, is I'm trying to introduce you to a lot of different Anglican texts. So if you're in our prayer book service, uh, we, we, that's one of the reasons we use the overhead and all that, and, and, and even in our bulletins. I'm trying to introduce you all to as many different Anglican traditions as possible here, so when you go to other Anglican services, you will be familiar with them, so you don't get too tied into one particular service. But in our confessional many weeks, uh, at least in the first service, you'll hear me after I stand up after confession to say, your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Now, I don't know how many of you have measured the east from the west, right? If you could lay out a measuring tape, the east is from the west is pretty far. Now, on the globe, eventually it would come together, maybe, on one side, you could say, but you'll chase that forever. It's an infinite distance. And we say that, why? To give you a picture. Now, we could just say it's separated forever, but that's not what the prayer book is trying to do. The prayer book is using that language for a particular reason. They want to give you imagery just like the psalmists do and just like Jesus does. Jesus uses imagery and the psalmists use imagery and scripture uses imagery just like Revelation and others. We do use like specific texts and we have theological statements, but we want to use imagery because imagery, visualization, gives you a picture in your head and can have, it can kind of sink into your soul for a particular reason. And we want that to kind of sink into your soul. That's what the authors of the prayer book want it to do. We want you to understand something about forgiveness, something that your logical mind can't always grasp. And I think the historical church understands this, right? The prayer book is ancient. These prayers are ancient. And they understand that forgiveness needs to be grasped in a much deeper way. Now, this might strike you as odd at first, but I think it'll only strike you as odd if you've never done anything for which you've really needed deep forgiveness. How many of you have never done anything for which you've really needed deep forgiveness, right? If you've never done anything for which you've really needed deep forgiveness, well, one, congratulations, and two, you're probably under 20, right? Um, and, and maybe not even that. So you're really young. We've all done something for which we're deeply ashamed, right? And then when you've done something for which you've really needed deep forgiveness, you understand when you come on Sunday morning and you pray those prayers. Lord, forgive me. You want it. You need it. Now, when I say something you need deep forgiveness for, I don't mean the thing, you know, the, the, what I'm talking about is the thing that you're deeply embarrassed about, but not the thing that happened to you. See, sometimes people think they need forgiveness for a thing that, that happened to them, right? Right? Some, somebody did something terrible to you. And I'll often talk to people and say, wow, you know, this thing that happened to me, um, I need forgiveness for. And I'll talk to them and I say, no, somebody perpetrated something on you and that wasn't your fault. You don't need forgiveness for that. Right? That happened to you. You need healing for that. That's a very different thing. You didn't cause that thing. What I'm talking about is a thing that you did, 
that you damaged another person, or you damaged a group, or you damaged an organization, or maybe even something you did that damaged yourself, but something that you know you shouldn't have done. Now, maybe you got away with it. Maybe those people didn't know you did it. Maybe you, you, you thought you got away with it, and maybe at the time, you're like, your conscience even lets you get away. You, you walked away, and you're like, whoo, it's over. And for the next few days or few weeks or few months, you didn't, wow, you didn't even think about it. But over time, your conscience began to hound you and hound you and hound you. Our consciences will do that. Now, we can try to keep ignoring them, and sometimes we can do it until we numb them. And eventually, if we keep doing bad things, we might even be able to sear them. But it has some pretty bad consequences over the long haul. Now, some people don't have consciences. Those are called sociopaths. That has another bad consequence. But most of us, our consciences really dig into us, and we understand then the need for forgiveness. The prayer book speaks of a better way, though. It speaks of a way that comes in part from this passage in John. It speaks of a way in which we can get out of this loop of of this darkness, of this struggle, of this pain, which this lack of forgiveness, of this agony that our consciences bring upon us. And it comes in part from this passage and many others. And so let's take a look at this passage. Let's dive in. This repentance, the nature of repentance and forgiveness in Scripture. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, we read this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we're all sinners according to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's what Barry read to us this morning. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's a famous passage, Romans 3, 23 to 31. It's worth memorizing that whole passage. In Psalm 14, 3, we read this. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now that's a pretty stout statement. How many have done good? Nobody. All are corrupt. Now that doesn't mean that That doesn't mean that we never do good. What the psalmist is saying, and what the Romans author, what Paul is saying, is that everyone sins. There is nobody who has ever been perfect. See, all kinds of people will try to argue that they have been perfect at one time or another, but here we're saying no one has ever done it perfectly. In Psalm 14.3, no one does good not even one. In Psalm 14, or sorry, 143, 2, we read this, enter not into judgment with your sermon, for no one living is righteous before you. No one can do it on their own. And now that's a truth that's most helpful to remember when you intersect with non-believers who are really kind of irking you when they're doing wicked things, right? I see this all the time with Christians. They're struggling with non-believers who are making them mad, who are doing bad things. Why? Because apart from Jesus Christ and the intervention of the Holy Spirit, 
We are all slaves to sin. So you should expect that even, well, you should expect that believers are going to be struggling with sin. How much more should you expect that non-believers are going to be struggling with sin? Right? This is the way that humanity will function. Right? There, but for the grace of God, go I. That is a saying that Christians should be familiar with. So when you come across non-believers, you should expect that they will be slaves to sin. You should marvel when they're not doing wrong things. Now, what do we mean by this? We say as Christians that we are totally depraved apart from Christ, not utterly depraved. Utter depravity means that... So, let me, let me clarify this. We say that we are made in the image of God, the imago dei, meaning that we have some good in us because we're made in God's image, but that we're totally depraved, meaning that sin has infected us, that we do bad things because we're sinners, but we have some good in us because we're made in God's image. Utter depravity means that we are completely and totally evil, Satan, right? Satan does bad things. He's given himself over to evil. That's utter depravity. A demonic entity is utterly depraved. You don't expect the demonic entity to want anything but pure evil for you. That's utter depravity. Total depravity is simply every part of us is infected with the virus of sin. Okay? That's what it is. Christ does healing within us, the Holy Spirit, and he allows us to sin or to not sin. And then when we come and we become saved... When we get our new heavenly bodies, we will not be able to sin. I'm sorry, we will be able to not sin completely. We will be changed. We won't be able to sin. That will be the transition, right? So when you run into non-believers, they have no Christ within them. You expect them to struggle. You expect them to sin. This is an important thing, and we get this from this. We're all slaves to it, but for the intervention of Jesus. It's critical. We need to understand this. So if you look at various listings of sins in Scripture, you'll pretty quickly notice that they are long and involved. You'll also notice that they're broad and not super specific. There are certainly stories that give us super specific sins, such as Ananias and Sapphira, Simeon, Ahab and Jezebel, David and Bathsheba. But many others just give us lists. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. Follow this list with me. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, without, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now in that list, some of these sins are easy to spot, while others are a lot more difficult. So in our current culture, many of those sins could be celebrated. Just like in Paul's day, many of those sins were celebrated. Others of those sins in our culture might be rejected. And as in any culture, when Paul gives a list of sins, or, 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 or Peter gives a list of sins, or Jesus gives a list of sins, or in the Old Testament they give a list of sins, some of those sins were celebrated in their day and some were rejected. Right? And that's how it is always. 
Some of those sins, though, for Christians are very obvious, and others of those sins are hard to spot, aren't they? That's something that you also need to understand. And as Christians, we, we all tend to have this kind of judgment that we, when, we see other, when we see people who are struggling with certain sins, we tend to point those sins out and think of those people as somehow less than holy, right? The sins that are pretty easy. I see a person who struggles with cussing. I see a person who struggles with obvious sexual sin. I see a person who struggles with like bold-faced pride on the outside. I can kind of point at that person and I kind of think lesser of that person. But if we understand earlier that all people are sinners, that there is no one righteous, not even one, then we can look in this congregation and understand that every single person here struggles with a sin. And then I understand that if Jonathan has a sin that's external, I don't judge him any harder, right, than Denny who might have a sin that's internal, right? They're both sinners. And just because he wears his on the outside doesn't mean that he's not wearing his on the inside. We as Christians, though, oftentimes will judge the one who wears it on the outside harder than the one who wears it on the inside. So C.S. Lewis has this great quote. And he says this, and he, he starts ranking the sins, and, and when he goes through these sins, he says, oftentimes Christians, he says, have this ridiculous standard where we say, look, these sexual sins are the worst of all sins. And he goes, but when he starts to peel it down, he says, what is the worst of all sins? And in his estimation, he says that pride is the worst of all sins. And he goes, why? He says, because pride was the main sin that caused the fall in the garden. Why? Adam and Eve wanted to become as God. But, he says, pride is the hardest of all to find. There's some external, um, uh, external manifestations of pride. But oftentimes, pride is hard to see. And he says, for this reason, the prostitute in church who comes in begging for forgiveness, sitting in the front row is often much better off than the church lady sitting next to her, quietly judging her, saying, why is she here? It's a powerful statement. Or the smelly homeless person who walks in in church, much better off than everyone holding their noses thinking, get them out of here. We see the external, we don't see the internal. But when we understand the nature of what's going on here, we understand that everybody struggles with sin. And then that helps us understand that we are no worse or better sinners than anyone around us. That helps us then as a church body and as believers Understand that we can confess our sins to one another because we understand that the other also struggles with sin and that their sins are no worse or less than ours. It helps us as older brothers and sisters in Christ, or more mature, I should say, not older, more mature brothers and sisters in Christ because maturity comes with strength in Christ. I'm not saying age. You've walked and you're more mature in Christ, right? That's why Timothy at 30 was a more mature believer than many new believers who were 60 or 70. 
So Paul says, let no one look down on you because you're youth. He was an elder and a bishop at a young age. And so mature believers then need to be sharing their weaknesses with younger believers to help younger believers understand how to walk through this faith. That's a sign of strength, not of weakness. So he says, so when anyone tells us that they don't struggle with sin, we know for a fact that they're either liars or they're clueless. That's what John says. What the apostle says is either way, a person who says that is not saved. It's a sure sign that they're not a believer. Why? Because it's a sure sign of the absence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, from the time the Holy Spirit enters us, he sets to work transforming us into the body of Christ. This is what's called progressive sanctification. Remember that big fancy um, term. Now you know a seminary term. Progressive sanctification. Everyone say it with me. Progressive sanctification. Now, when you run into a new believer, never ever use that word. (laughs) But you know it now. Progressive sanctification. It's the process of progressively becoming holy. Now, understand, when you come to Christ and the Holy Spirit enters you, and the Holy Spirit enters you, like we say, Christ is in my heart. Yes, really, but the Holy Spirit is in your heart. Okay, the Holy Spirit's in your heart, and where he is, Christ is, so technically you're right, but really, okay, whatever. Uh, So you're never holier than at that moment. You're never holier than at that moment. How can you be holier than when Jesus enters you, right? No, the Holy Spirit enters you. See, I made the error. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Never going to be holier than that moment. However, you are going to become more Christ-like, and that's the process of progressive sanctification. Now, the Spirit should, sets about changing you from that point on, transforming you. Galatians 5, to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is, you know this song with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You say it in that awkward way, I know it's clumsy, but you'll memorize that verse. You should be growing in these areas. Not all at once, but you should be growing in all these areas. That is progressive sanctification. And these areas are all internal. Internal. The Spirit is within you. You should be transforming. Now this is where we have a radically different understanding of humanity than modern secularism. All right? Modern secularism, now follow me, because everyone's like, oh, you're going to get political. I'm not getting political here. But in, our com- in the most common form in our country, it currently blend, uh, um, the most common form of modern secularism in our country is progressivism, secular progressivism. That takes form in, in, in um, liberalism and conservatism. There are other forms of it, but that's the most common form. Now, Believe me, I knew that. I grew up in the D.C. area. I've seen it in college. I've studied it my whole life. That is the most common form. But this understanding was born out as modern secularism out of the Enlightenment. So it gave us all kinds of forms, right? Hegelian forms, Marxist forms, Nazism, which is National Socialism. There's all kinds of forms of secularism that teach the perfectibility of humanity. So, watching this special on Nazism right now, but National Socialists 
believed that if you could perfect humanity, you could do it through breeding and stock, right? And you could, you could pick the perfect master race. They were on the Darwinian principle. And if we could just tweak the human race and we could have these breeding programs, we could come up with the perfect race. They would have this perfection that way. And they went around eliminating anybody who they thought was weak. Marxists also thought you could get there. We could create the perfect utopian society, right? They did it in Maoist China, and they've done it in Vietnam, and they've done it in the killing fields, and they've done it in, um, in the Soviet Union and everywhere else. If we could have the perfect government and the perfect race, or the perfect way, they also did breeding programs and all these other things. We could also create a perfect way. Secularism always tries to do this. There's a perfect way. We could create heaven on earth. It's happened in Central America. It's happened just about everywhere. And in our current day, we have something similar arising even in our country. If we're able to teach the right things, all of this has this in common, cleanse our culture of the wrong types of thoughts, then we'll be able to eliminate specific bad behaviors. Now, these bad behaviors may be intrinsic to particular people groups, particular um, uh, particular economic groups, or however, every group, every kind of spin on this is different. But that's what they're trying to do. We have this perfection. It's a secular thing, right? And so they try to cleanse the culture. They try to do it. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs is what they're ultimately getting to, which means you can't make the perfect society without getting rid of of the people. So they, if they can't, if they're not successful, ultimately they'll get frustrated and they'll say, well, then we got to get rid of all those undesirables and then we'll have the perfect society. And that's very different from the Christian view because they have no view of the sin nature, right? So for them, society has got to be perfectible. We just have to be able to tweak it and we can get to this perfect society, not realizing that even if we were able to get to this perfect society, we're all still going to die. So what is the point? But notice, even in this, our society picks and chooses what is good and bad based on random standards. There's no absolute right and wrong because we don't get right and wrong from a God, merely from a group who changes what they believe every few months or so. And when society does this, there's no way to gain forgiveness because it's simply a judgment of a mob. But with God, it's very different. With God, there is an absolute right and wrong, and there is way, a way to gain forgiveness. And that's what's different about Scripture from the rest of it. That's what's different about John and what he's teaching us. Right and wrong is for a purpose with God. Wrong is a path that leads us to eternal death. Right is a path that leads us to eternal life. It's not the false truth made up by a group of people who long for power. It's made by an eternal God who loves you with a love that burns so hot that he sacrificed his own love for you. That's a radical different vision. Radically different than the world's view of right and wrong. So he understands the sin nature deeply, this God. Why? Because sin is fundamentally what God is not. And that's what John said earlier. Sin is darkness. God is light. Darkness is what light isn't. It's the absence of light. It's the absence of good. 
And so he calls us into the light. You were created in his image, meaning that you're not bad because of how you were created, and you're not fundamentally evil because of your unchangeable characteristics like our society might tell you you are. And anyone who tells you otherwise is in sin. We're all born with a sin nature, and you can't be educated out of this sin nature. It simply can't be done. It has to be driven out of you by a holy God. The Holy Spirit has to change you and transform you from within. And ultimately, it can't be removed until the second coming of God. Your spirit can be transformed from within, but you still have this sinful body that we're trapped in, and that will have to be removed at the second coming. So Scripture gives us a radically different view. And this is why any governmental or religious system that teaches us that we can perfect humanity is doomed to failure. And this is why Christians need to be very cautious about buying into any religious or governmental system that thinks that it's going to have the perfect way. They all claim to have it. They will all fail. Every single one. I hear young Christians all the time thinking that this governmental system is going to be it. The Marxists had a term for them. Useful idiot. Please remember that term. It is most helpful. Because we know that humanity is not perfectible, and we are not perfectible, this should be profoundly impact how we as believers see and interact with those around us. We need to expect that others will sin against us, and we must be ready to forgive them. Why? Because we know that we will sin against them also. You're a sinner. They're sinners. And we need to interact with other people knowing that. We need to know that we are failures just as they are failures. And so when people sin, you shouldn't be packing up your toys and going home. You should be ready to forgive. And when you sin against them, you should be going and seeking their forgiveness. That's not a weakness. That's a sign of strength. You should be leading the way with younger believers. You should be asking their forgiveness. Can you do that? Our current society is one in which there are constant declarations of self-righteous indignation against others, often by people who themselves act in the most atrocious ways while they are doing it. This is the way of a wicked world following a wicked secular religion that condemns without forgiveness. We're called to forgive as Jesus forgave us. And we're also called to remember this, and we'll end with this, that when we truly seek forgiveness, Jesus does forgive us as far as the east is from the west. Listen to this, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is how we are called to forgive those who sin against us. We don't hold it over them, reminding them of their sin time and time again. We're people of the light, and that means even being people of the light with ourselves. 
And we're sometimes we're hardest on ourselves. We're harder on ourselves than anybody else. Because sometimes forgiving ourselves is the hardest thing of all to do. And if you can't forgive yourselves, if you're struggling with that, I would remind you of this. If Jesus can forgive you, then shouldn't you forgive you? So this morning, if you are struggling with forgiving someone else, or if you are struggling with forgiving you, then I would ask you before you come for communion this morning to give it to God, to give it to Jesus. The prayer book says, and Christ says, don't come to communion if you're holding aught against another, if you're in unforgiveness. So, definitely cross your arms if you're in unforgiveness against another person. Go and seek out that other person and reconcile. If you've tried and they won't reconcile, you've done your best. Uh, But definitely forgive them. If you haven't forgiven yourself, give that to God this morning and forgive yourself. And if you're struggling and you need help with that, you can talk to us, certainly. But also go back with the prayer team. Have the prayer team pray for you. Have them pray to help you, for you to let it go and to forgive. Don't swallow that bitterness That pill of bitterness just eats away at your soul. It's difficult. It destroys everything around you. Amen.